This is Rachel Fields and Sam Swartz with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Wisconsin House Speaker Robin Voss has been subpoenaed to testify before the federal investigation into the January 6th insurrection, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. The committee is seeking information from Speaker Voss regarding a conversation he had with former President Trump and whether Trump requested Voss to take further actions to block absentee ballots. Speaker Voss has responded with a countersuit, refusing to testify and dismissing the subpoena as a public relations campaign in the run-up to the November elections. Several other witnesses before the committee have tried to file similar suits. So far, the suits have been unsuccessful or have not been decided yet. Voss was originally scheduled to testify this morning, but the testimony was rescheduled for a future date after the committee received the lawsuit. For the second straight year, Wisconsinites are projected to pay more for heating going into this winter. The National Energy Assistance Directors Association has issued a report predicting that the average home will cost around $1,200 to heat over the course of the winter, an increase of more than 17%. Natural gas, the most common fuel to heat homes in Wisconsin, also saw the fastest growth in prices, although it remains the cheapest source of heat, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Utilities are not allowed to make a profit on energy costs, but they are allowed to pass any price increases on to the consumer. And with energy costs predicted to increase, that is likely to increase heating costs by around $200 for the winter. To offset costs, residents can air seal their attic or basement or upgrade their dryer vents. Residents who earn less than 60% of the state median income can also receive financial assistance from Wisconsin's Home Energy Assistance Program. The Wisconsin Department of Transportation announced five recipients of grants for projects to improve Wisconsin's freight railways. The grants amount to almost $8 million and seek to address issues of connectivity and efficiency in the state's freight rail network, according to Channel 3000 News. One such project is the replacement of a timber timber trestle bridge near Boscobel, Wisconsin, which received a grant of $1.5 million. The City of Madison announced today that Dane Corps 2.0, the housing assistance program for the city, would resume services on October 5th. The program had previously been put on pause after the federal funds that had supported it expired. But the city was notified this week that their request for additional funds had been approved, allowing for the program to begin again. Dane Corps 2.0 application portal will reopen on October 5th, and residents seeking housing assistance are invited to apply. Previous applications for assistance will continue to be processed, and people who have already submitted applications do not need to reapply. The City of Madison announced last week that absentee ballots have been mailed out to voters that requested them. The city encourages absentee voters to check and make sure their ballot certificate envelope is sealed and complete before returning it to the city clerk's office. A completed absentee ballot will include the voter's signature, the witness's signature, and the witness's home address. P.O. boxes are not acceptable. Completed absentee ballots must be either mailed back to the clerk's office or hand-delivered in person. Absentee ballot drop boxes are prohibited and all drop boxes around the city have been locked shut. Voters should not attempt to deliver their ballots via drop boxes. And those are today's headlines. Last week, the Dane County Board took an unusual step, sending a strong message to state lawmakers to show just how committed they are to protecting abortion access. WORT producer Nate Weggehout has more. 
In May, the Dane County Board passed a resolution condemning Wisconsin's 19th century abortion ban. While that resolution was more symbolic than substantive, last week the board took a more tangible step. Last Thursday, the Dane County Board passed an ordinance limiting the county from giving any money to groups or programs that investigate or prosecute abortion seekers or providers. Specifically, the ordinance would ban the county from contracting with any federal, state, or municipal agency that investigates, arrests, or prosecutes people seeking or providing an abortion. Additionally, the county would not be able to give or receive money from any agency that does so. District 33 Supervisor Dana Palabon was one of the 29 votes for the ordinance. She says that protecting reproductive rights is personally important to her, both as a woman and as the executive director of the Rape Crisis Center. We want to send a signal to the legislatures. We want to send a signal to the rest of, of the counties in Wisconsin that we want this strong of a stance because there needs to be consequences for people who prosecute persons who are pregnant from utilizing abortive services. Not everyone was on board with the plan. Five supervisors voted against it, with one abstention and two absent. District 25 Supervisor Tim Kiefer voted against the ordinance change because he says that, depending on how the November election turns out, it could have dire consequences. About one-third of our operating budget is money that comes in the forms of grants from the federal government and the state government. In order to get any of these grants, the county, in each instance, has to enter into a contract with that, that agency. Depending on what the results are going to be of the election in November, it is possible that in January of 2023, you may have new governor, you may have a new attorney general. And if that were to happen and they were to change the state government's position with regards to enforcing this abortion law, we, the county government, could be cut off from all state grant funding. The wording of the ordinance is very specific, saying that it would not contract with any agencies that are working to investigate or prosecute someone seeking or providing an abortion. That means that if Tim Michaels does become governor in January, this ordinance would not immediately ban Dane County from contracting with the state as a whole. But it does mean that if the state justice department started prosecuting abortion seekers or providers, all funding from the justice department would stop. And Kiefer says that if the State Department of Health Services gets involved in prosecuting as well, that could cause major issues. The money for the Dane County Sheriff's Office, for the Dane County DA's Office, comes in the form of grants that come from the Wisconsin Department of Justice. And then a very large percentage of the funding for the human services budget from Dane County comes through other parts, other agencies of the state government. So this has the potential to to cause some really, really serious budget problems for the county government, and that's why I voted no. The ordinance also affects any contracts the county has with other counties across Wisconsin. Chuck Hicklin is the chief financial officer with Dane County. He says that, as far as he knows, the ordinance would not affect any current contracts the county has with either the state or other counties. 
it's going to be difficult to monitor some of these because we would never know if there was an investigation going on. You know, that would be confidential to the law enforcement agencies or the district attorney for whatever county that would be. So we'll just have to see kind of how that all unfolds in the future. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't practically know kind of how, other than seeing it like an article in the newspaper, how we would know uh, whether there was an investigation, uh, an arrest or a prosecution of someone that we do business, you know, that we have a contract with. Another potential issue with the ordinance comes from the sheriff's office itself. Kiefer says that the ordinance would not have binding power over the sheriff's office, even if it decided to investigate and arrest someone seeking or providing an abortion. Because the sheriff is an independent constitutional officer, the county board is actually not allowed to put those restrictions on funding given to the um, sheriff's office. So the, the county board would not actually be able to enforce that part of the ordinance. Which I think is another problem that I, I don't think the county board should be passing ordinances that it's totally clear from the very beginning that the ordinance is, is unenforceable. Pelabon responds. So if those folks get into office, I am worried about ramifications that go above and beyond just what is happening here. There are so many things that I am concerned about if the election does not go the way that I feel it needs to be. Just because I have looked at what the policies are of both candidates, um, and one of the candidates' policies across the board are oppressive and uh, will not bode well for us on the fiscal end on many different levels. So while, yes, I'm concerned about that on on this level, to me, it is an all-out concern if certain people get into office. The ordinance still needs to be signed by Executive Joe Parisi, who has said that he is in support of it. But Parisi says that he would like to see the board pass an amendment to clean up any unintended impacts that may unfold after the November election. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. Fall is officially here and the cool temperatures are reminding us that winter is just around the corner. WORT weather producer Caitlin Davis breaks it down. Fall is finally here, and Madison's weather definitely took the hint. Cool and windy temperatures are here just in time for the spooky season. Temperatures are currently setting at 57 degrees, and winds are high at 11 miles per hour coming from the northwest. Humidity levels are much lower from yesterday, after another cold front moved in with some isolated thunderstorms that we saw. Allergy counts are down into the low category. As we continue to move later into the fall season, these counts should continue to stay low. The UV index is still sticking around, only reaching moderate to low categories, but again, if you have sensitive skin, it is still ideal to cover up. As we are moving closer to the later months of the year, we are seeing less sunlight, the sun now not rising until 6.50am and getting closer to set around 7pm. Don't let those shorter days keep you from getting out of bed. Tonight is looking to drop down to the mid-40s with continuous higher wind speeds. Tomorrow is another cold day for us, the high only reaching 55 degrees, and we're going to be dropping all the way down to 38 degrees during the night. With these low temperatures and Christmas lights already in stores, don't get fall confused for winter. High wind speeds will continue into tomorrow throughout the day, and Wednesday is looking to follow the same pattern. Thursday will be a little warmer with highs into the lower 60s, but again, we will still be feeling the high wind speed 
and the low again will only reach 42 degrees. Friday is looking to be sunny and temperatures will reach the mid-60s with warmer wind coming from the south. And for game day against Illinois this Saturday, temperatures are reaching the upper 60s and will be sunny with lower wind speeds. But knowing the Midwest, this could very well change. With your WORT weather report here in Madison, I'm your producer, Caitlin Davis. The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. I'm your host, Rachel Fields, here with my co-host, Sam Swartz. Thanks for joining us. Earlier this month, Asa Masa Amini was killed by Iranian police after she was arrested for improperly wearing her hijab. The incident sparked massive protest across the country, leading to police cracking down on Iranian citizens and cutting off internet access in the country. Here in Madison, a group of Iranian protesters gathered at the state capitol yesterday to show their support for the Iranian people and call for women and a call for women's rights. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Wegehout spoke with Sorush Aslani, who helped organize the protest, about yesterday's demonstra- demonstration. So to sort of start things off here, Sarush, tell me uh, about uh, Masa Amini, uh, the, the, the incident that sort of kicked off what's happening in Iran uh, at the moment and sort of uh, the impetus of yesterday's demonstration. Uh, yes. Uh, so on September 13, to be accurate, a young woman, Masa Amini, uh, she was visiting Tehran, capital from a small town, in West of Iran, Sapez. Sapez is a Kurdish town. And while she was visiting the capital with her, capital with her family, he was arrested by uh, Iran morality police. So he was perceived or alleged to have improper wearing of hijab, which is, sounds like a, a kind of a silly accusation or a strange accusation, but uh, something that makes it more dramatic is that uh, in the beginning, first she was with her. She was with her family. Also, the type of hijab that she had was also quite mainstream, even in Iran standards. So, just she had a small piece of her hair out, and she was arrested uh, violently by the police. Then, in police custody, she was subject to violation, uh, violence, and she was beaten, and uh, she had a skull fracture. And three days after that, she uh, passed in in the hospital. So it was very heartbreaking. Many people were outraged by this, and uh, this was resonating with uh, different uh, socioeconomic groups of people, different generations, different occupations, people who have religious beliefs or people who don't have religious beliefs. Uh, every part of society was outraged by this. Many people were in the streets, and there were protests and demonstrations related to this. So the government was oppressing and repressing the protest violently, and as a result of that, many people, mostly young people, were injured and dead in those protests. So we were gathering to show solidarity with the people in Iran and also to condemn this crime and uh, uh, so show to the Iranian people that we care about this issue and show to the world that we want to raise awareness about this violation of human rights. 
And so, yeah, you sort of mentioned uh, the demonstration that happened uh, yesterday, and that happened at the at the uh, capital, uh, the state capital here. Tell me, tell me a little bit about that demonstration. About uh, I know you sort of went over it a little bit, but why were you out there, and sort of why why it's important uh, for this demonstration to have happened? Uh, yes, so this was an event that basically initiated by a group of uh, young folks here in Madison. So we don't have a very large Iranian-American community, but a group of uh, students who care about these matters, they initiated this, uh, uh, this event, and a lot of people in community tried to join and uh, support this. First off, we want to say that we care about this matter. It's not something that, so Iran is uh, the first home for many of the people, uh, Iranian-Americans who are living there, or people who are on a student or work visas uh, here. Also something that adds to the pattern is that uh, as a result of this protest, the Iranian government has disconnected citizens' access to Internet uh, during most of the hours of the day. So they do not share the news of this incident and about the government's repression of the protest. So we thought that also it would be it would be sort of our responsibility to share this news to the world. So try to be the voice of the Iranian people who want to pursue human rights, want to raise awareness about these issues, but they don't have sufficient channels to do that. So that was one act that we were considering. So try to be the voice of people who do not have sufficient voice at this time. And now just sort of wrapping things up here, uh, Sarush, uh, what, what, I know you said that the Iranian community here in Madison is pretty small, but what, what do you want people to know about uh, the Iranian community, especially in, sort of in regards to what is currently happening in Iran? So, I mean, um, basically, Iran is a complex country. Iran is a very diverse country. About 83 million people live there, and we have also a, a few million people living in outside of country, working in diaspora, students. So it's a very, like United States, which is a diverse country with a range of various beliefs and ideologies and preferences. Iran is also a complicated country. So uh, first, we appreciate the community that shows support with this. Even uh, we as an Iranian-American who are here, I mean, we don't think that we are here to decide what Iranian people do. That is their decision. That is what they're called. It's neither our choice, decision, neither, I don't know, foreign governments, U.S. government, to decide what Iranian people should do. They have a very good judgment about how to pursue their human rights. We just want to raise awareness. So if you are someone who, citizens of Madison, people who support us and care about this, it would be nice to spread the word to your friends, to your community, uh, call your uh, representatives, senators, and ask them, first off, to be aware of this. Also try to do things that help the Iranians. Many times I see that the actions of the U.S. government, Congress, is to just sanctions after sanctions and after sanctions. And sometimes this is with good intention. They want to sanction the people who are oppressing the Iranian citizens. Basically, the impact of those sanctions is on citizens. As a result of those sanctions, people cannot have access to pharmaceutical drugs. As a result of those sanctions, some of the basic needs of people cannot be maintained in Iran. So I just want to, okay, please raise awareness to your community, to your politicians, talk to them, and try to engage with Iranian people with something more than just sanctioning government. It has been done for many years and it hasn't worked. Maybe there are better ways to pursue this.
All right. And do you just have any any final thoughts of anything that we didn't really touch on here that you think is important uh, for to uh, get out there for people to know? Uh, sure. Yeah. Thank you so much. I first appreciate uh, you your support. Your the fact that your media support uh, covered this the community support. It really means a lot to us. It was very heartwarming to this. One small point that maybe I forgot to add this in your last question is that again. Even the community here in the Iranian community here is also very diverse. I mean, many of them are, I mean, pro-women rights, many of them are pro-LGBTQ rights. We care about minority rights. We care about the kind of the challenges of other people. So, uh, again, I would like to appreciate that also people in the community and country also consider that. So nobody wants to uh, kind of be looked at through a lens of a stereotype and assuming that, okay, this is a fight that, Iranian women are trying to fight oppressive men. I mean, if you look at the rally yesterday, there were many men who were showed that they support this kind of women rights. In, in Tehran streets or other towns in Iran, it's also the same. Men are also fighting for women's rights uh, shoulder by shoulder of their women. So this is the reality of Iran. I've been talking with Sarush Aslani about the uh, demonstration that was held at the state capitol yesterday in honor of Masa Amini, who was killed by Iranian police earlier this month. Uh, Sarush, thank you again for talking with me here. Thank you so much. Have a great day. With the risk of a rail strike still pending this year, now is a good time to reconsider the Great Railroad Strike of 1922. The strike involved 400,000 workers and has direct relevance for today's railroad workers and the nation's supply chain. As a reminder, the International Association of Machinists, one of the 12 railroad unions voting, has rejected the deal and could strike Thursday. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong. With a possible national railroad strike temporarily halted, now seems like a good time to recall the Great Railroad Strike of 1922. The strike began on July 1st, 1922 and a walkout protesting railway shopmen and maintenance workers' second wage cut in two years. It was the first truly national railroad strike. 400,000 workers walked off the job, nearly 100,000 in the Chicago area alone. It effectively ended on September 1st with an outrageously broad court injunction. Before the strike, railroad work was unsteady, dangerous, and exhausting. Turnover was high. In 1889, railroad workers died on the job at a rate of one out of every 357, limiting work to 16 hours a day did not happen until 1907. Rail workers were also divided along racial and ethnic lines. Most engineers and conductors were native-born men. Building and repair work of the tracks was done by the Irish, the Italians, and then by the Romanians and Mexicans by the 1910s. African Americans worked as Pullman porters. It wasn't until the 20th century that women were finally hired. Many railroad workers earned enough to own their own homes, but others, especially Mexicans, lived in labor camps in wretched conditions, often living in boxcars. During World War I, the Wilson administration took over the railroads. With looming labor shortages, the government raised wages, recognized the unions, and instituted the eight-hour day for railroad workers. The unions got a powerful position in the councils of federal 
Railroad Labor Relations. That power was solidified in the 1920 Transportation Act, which established the Railroad Labor Board, a federal agency that oversaw wages and working conditions of over 2 million railroad workers. But after the war ended, the rail companies cut their workers' pay once and then again in 1922. The second pay cut was 12%, but did not apply to the big four railroad brotherhoods. The Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers, Brotherhood of Locomotive Firemen and Enginemen, the Order of Railway Conductors, and the Brotherhood of Railroad Trainmen. Several smaller unions also got the same deal, so only seven of 16 rail unions struck on July 1st of 1922. The railroad companies quickly hired replacement workers, scabs. Some railroad presidents wanted to return to pre-war conditions of unfettered, union-free labor relations. The strike was violent and bitter, with the Railroad Labor Board effectively becoming a tool of the employers. Companies hired over 16,000 additional guards to protect railroad property during the strike. One big railroad sent three special gangs of 500 railroad cops each to key rail centers to break the strikes there. Governors in several states called out the National Guard, and the Attorney General, Harry Dougherty, directed federal agents to assist the railroads. The police also took advantage of existing spy networks. Ten strikers were killed by the police in the course of the strike. Some strikers posed as strike breakers, gathering intelligence on repairs, engaging in sabotage, or encouraging more walkouts. The railroads had difficulty finding competent workers or making needed repairs. Locomotives failed inspections at a rate of 71%. This created dangerous working conditions. Criminals took advantage of the situation to steal anything that was movable. Guards stole too. By August 9th, the big four brotherhoods in the West took unofficial strike action over safety concerns. They complained of poor treatment by guards. Alarmed company officials quickly recognized the Brotherhood's right to refuse to operate unsafe equipment. The companies also disciplined overzealous guards. Meanwhile, the Harding administration pushed for a settlement to the national strike. A main sticking point was the company's demand for shopmen to give up their hard-won seniority rights. The strike formally ended on September 1st after a sweeping court injunction forbade most strike activity, and the strikers returned to work, defeated with their unions broken. But the strike had cost the railroads over $15 million. To prevent future strikes, the federal government passed the Railway Labor Act, RLA, of 1926. It was the first federal law guaranteeing the workers' right to organize, join unions, and elect representatives without employer coercion or interference. It also gave the government a direct role in settling rail disputes, and it was under this law that President Biden appointed a fact-finding emergency board and two 30-day cooling-off periods for the railroads this summer. Today, 40% of shipping is done by rail, and a rail strike could cost the economy $2 billion a day. In the 80s, there were 40 major freight lines, but after deregulation, there were only seven. Freight carriers are making record profits after shrinking their workforce from 540,000 in 1980 to 130,000 today. The rail companies still refuse to provide sick leave, a benefit existing in almost every other unionized workplace. Although labor settlements were reached under Biden, 12 unions must still ratify the agreements, and the machinists have already said no. The current workers' conditions would be familiar to those who struck 100 years ago, 12-hour days, almost always on call, little time spent at home, and so on. Pay is not the issue this time. Being treated like a human being and not a machine is the issue. And that is our story for today. For the past is in past, I'm Harry Richardson. 
It's Monday, which means feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new movies. First, a pretty good documentary on the great 60s band Credence Clearwater Revival. Then, a feel-good feature, I Used to Be Famous, about a down-on-his-luck musician and his new musical partner, a teen drummer with autism. Traveling Band, Creedence Clearwater Revival at the Royal Albert Hall is a pretty good documentary about one of my favorite bands of the late 60s, early 70s, Creedence Clearwater Revival, CCR. Traveling Band is directed by Bob Smeaton, who gave us the Beatles Anthology and Hendrix Band of Gypsies. It shows some cool archival footage, some never seen before, about the band, who briefly rivaled the Beatles in popularity in 1970 when the Beatles broke up. Sadly, CCR followed suit in 1972, driven apart by fights over creative control and financial issues. But the documentary doesn't burden us with a breakup, it just gives us the great music. We see the early days of the band, and the group got together in junior high in El Cerrito, California, a small suburb of San Francisco. Tom Fogarty, Stu Cook, and Doug Clifford started the band, and John Fogarty joined a little later, eventually becoming the lead vocalist and primary songwriter. The band went through some name changes over the 13 years of working together, but the band decided on their own name in 1967, after being derailed in 1966 when John Fogarty and Doug Clifford got drafted. Fogarty joined the Army Reserves, and Clifford joined the Coast Guard Reserves. They became the Creighton's Clearwater Revival, CC. In 1968, covers of Susie Q, Dale Hawkins, and I Put a Spell on You, Screamin' Jay Hawkins, became popular, and in 1969, two John Fogarty originals, Proud Mary and its B-side, Born on the Bayou, reached number two on the Billboard hits. In 1969, they hit all the big festivals and were the first band to sign up for Woodstock. John Fogarty's most popular songs were inspired by the South and Southern black music from Lil Richard, Chuck Berry, and Lead Belly. Lead Belly, not mentioned in the documentary, covers Cotton Fields and the more famous Midnight Special ended up on the band's fourth album. Most of the last 20 minutes gives us live footage of the April 1970 performance at the Royal Albert Hall in London. All in all, a fine documentary, well worth watching. It just started playing on Netflix. Up next, a new feature film, also with a musical theme. That was awesome. This is in a famous band, Mum. You were in Stereo Dream. What are you here for? I think I'm lost, you know. And now you are found. What do you want more than anything else in this entire world? I want to go to music school. Don't need nobody. That was a clip from the trailer for the sentimental, heartwarming movie I Used to Be Famous, co-written and directed by Eddie Sternberg. This is a sweet, warm-hearted movie about a down-on-his-luck musician, Vince, who teams up with an autistic teenage drummer, Stevie. Leo Long. The movie is pretty predictable, but that's okay because of the genuine rapport between the two main actors and a great supporting cast, especially Eleanor Matsura as Stevie's mom, Amber, and Kurt Ejiwan in a bit part as a music therapist. The movie starts out briefly with Vince, the leader of the popular British boy band The Stereo Dreams, playing their last gig together. Fast forward 20 years, and Vince is trying to get work at local bars in his neighborhood. He lives in Peckham, an artsy neighborhood in London, where no one is impressed by his current work. Feeling sorry for himself, Vince sets up in a crowded market to practice. One local outdoor merchant says, seemingly friendly 
enough, oh, you're busking now. Vince starts up with his keyboards and is soon joined by Stevie playing the beat with his drumsticks on the metal park bench. Vince is initially annoyed, but then he sees the kid is really good, and they start jamming, and a lively crowd urges them on. Soon, they have thousands of likes on TikTok, and Vince is showing off their joint venture at a local pub who is suddenly interested. Bring the kid, or the deal is off. Vince tries to convince Amber, Stevie's protective mom, that this will be good for Stevie, which leads to a pretty predictable story arc, complete with the finish you would expect. But again, that's okay. We end up with a satisfying, surprisingly moving ending. It just started playing on Netflix and is worth checking out. From WORT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer tonight was Nate Carlin. Your weather producer was Caitlin Davis. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson and to Nicholas Leet for technical production. Thank you to our pledge rappers, Helena White and Andrew Thomas. Engineer Dave Lawrenson got the news on the air. Nate Weggehout produced this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. And I'm your host, Sam Swartz. Up next is the most freeform show on your radio dial, The Access Hour, coming up after these announcements. Have a good night.